You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more. Welcome to another episode of the Hoops Fix podcast with me, your host, Sam Nita, full-time British basketball advocate. And on this week's show, we've got none other than Len Bush, uh, co-founder of the Seven Oaks Suns Basketball Club, which was set up in 2005 um, and has since gone on to becoming one of the powerhouse female programs in the country. Um, and of course, as you will know, if you're embedded in the British basketball scene, unfortunately pulled out of the WBBL heading into this season after um, you know previous years of a lot of his success. I think nine titles, um, a historic uh, three-peat playoff uh, championship run, um, as well as various other records. Uh, and I thought it'd be really interesting to get him on to kind of discuss uh, why why they have decided to make that decision to withdraw. You know the realities of running a uh, WBBL club in the UK, the financials so- that go into it, um, the work that has to go in behind the scenes, the models that potentially can and can't work, and why the Suns have kind of ended up in the situation they're in uh, today. They still have a thriving uh, junior program with over three hundred members. So we discussed that, and we discussed Len's background. Um, and how he ended up in the UK and kind of first setting up uh, the club all those years ago. So, yeah, really interesting conversation. And hopefully it will be the first of many that I'll be having uh, over the coming season as we ramp up the podcast again. Before we get into the show, as always, got to give a shout out for our Patreon account. Um, if you like what we're doing, if you want to support what we're doing, please go and check out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash hoopsfix. There you can sign up to give us a monthly or annual contribution or as much uh, of as much or as little as you'd like to help us do the work that we're doing. You know, these things don't make a lot of money. So we come directly to your audience to see whether or not for the price of a cup of coffee, you can make a small contribution to help continue to fund the work that we're doing. Anyway, uh, that is enough for me. Uh, please check out the show. I'd love to hear your feedback. As always, you can reach out to me on every single social media platform at Who's Fix. Um, if you want some one-on-one interaction, you can drop me an email privately to sam at whosfix.com. I reply to every single one. Um, yeah, and here's this week's show with me and Len Bush. Len, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. Excited. Yes, so am I. Um, there is, as we've just been discussing, a, a lot to talk about. Uh, and I think before we get into the, the nitty gritty, it would be interesting to just give people an overview of kind of your background um, in the sport, how you came to be here um, and how you first got involved with basketball. Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> well, it was about, uh, about seven years after graduating from university in the US, I um I had run a small business for that time and then sold that and was looking for something else to do and wasn't really sure. And then saw an ad that uh, New York City schools were desperate for teachers. Uh, I thought I decided, thought about coaching and teaching and applied and got a job in a New York City high school teaching uh, social studies and uh, got a job coaching. You know, they had a basketball job. Started with JV boys. It was a big uh, inner city high school in Queens, you know, 3,000 kids. And uh, did JV for a couple of years, then coached the girls for a few years, and then coached the boys for five years. And the program was going pretty well. I was having, enjoying it. The school was an adventure in itself. Um, you know, I could write a book just about my experiences in the school. There was a great team of teachers there. 
and then the principal retired and a lot of the teachers left and the whole tone of the school changed and um you know just it was just a bit of took a wrong turn so i was going to keep coaching and took a leave from teaching and right about that time my wife got an opportunity in uh, london and you know i always joke that some of my former players were due to be released from prison then so i probably should should go but uh it's only half a joke <laughs> and we uh you know we we came to london and uh you know, I played a lot of golf for a couple of years and hung out with the kids. And uh, then I said, I said I was much too young to be doing this every day. And I got back into coaching. Um, Seven Oaks was, uh, you know, there was a camp, oh, Red Miller Turner ran a camp in Canterbury. And, uh, you know, it was where I met uh, like Jesse Cezant there and a couple of other guys who are still involved in basketball. And, uh, but there was a group of girls that Red Miller had been working with who were from various clubs. And um, the outcome the next fall after that camp, they they had all gotten together, the parents, and said they wanted them all to play together. Seven Oaks Sons was formed. They needed someone to coach. Uh, I took the under-18s. Uh, it was quite an adventure, quite a lot of talented players. A lot of people hated us because a couple of other clubs folded as a result because they lost their two or three best players. And uh, so it was quite controversial and quite a challenge. And um, But we were successful from the start. And then that group was quite difficult. And over the next couple of years, as they left and we brought, you know, new kids came in, got a little easier to set up a, create a culture and you know, it was a little bit more fun, uh, more pleasant. And, you know, we just went from there, just continued, uh, you know, to be successful at the under 16 and under 18 level with girls. Um, and it's it continued, you know, just went on. And yeah. uh, what happened was, you know, I started to realize I needed to challenge the older players. We did it by playing, you know, Division One. Um, you know, cause the young players, they, they needed to play against better people. And then I started, I brought in a one or two pros. I brought in a rec dang. I brought in uh Ross Mason just so we'd have somebody, you know, uh, women who could, wouldn't let us get beat up and play in other women's teams. And also to challenge my best players in practice, you know, um, and then, we got to that 2017-18 group that, uh, you know, had four or five juniors and won the uh, WBBL uh, playoff final. Um, and then the, that group moved on and, you know, we got a few more women and then, and then the women became more of a, more of a focus, usually almost always with some young players around. Um, and then now we've, uh, you know, when it's almost going full circle, we've uh, discontinued the WBBL team and I'm now back. Um, I'm focused on the juniors again. Come full circle. That was a that was a, a very sweet recap of a, of a long period of time. Um, so what year was it that you moved to, to England and, and then the club, 98. 98, 98. The club was founded in 2005? Is, is that right? 
Yeah, so I start. I did do. I started a local club in Elmbridge, you know, in Weybridge. Uh, you know, there was a couple of days a week, and then um, oh, I got involved with the county stuff, and uh, and I said, um, and I've, you know, I remember I passed on the um, the local club to a couple of other coaches who then went on, and you know, have continued still coaching to this day, um, not there, but, you know, use it as a stepping stone. I coached at Tassus in those early years and, uh, and actually through the county stuff, that's how I found out about the group out in Tunbridge that was, you know, that Red Miller was training. And then I went and I, <clears throat> I wandered out there with my daughters and eventually I was running the sessions and, uh, that was really how it started. When you when you came to England and you started getting involved with basketball here, I guess what what were your um, initial reactions or thoughts? Like, can you remember your kind of your initial sort of responses well, to to how basketball was in in England? Yeah, it was very strange. I mean, I you know one of the requirements for the house that we moved into in England was I had to have a paved uh, driveway so I could put a basketball hoop up because, you know, the gravel drives are really popular here. And, uh, um, so I, that was one of the prerequisites and the first three or four years, I would take my girls back to the U S there was a girls camp in, in New York, um, that I would bring them to, you know, well, I think we did twice a year. We might've done Easter and summer and, uh, you know, they all went to it, had a great time. And I actually, you know, worked in it a bit. And, um, you know, I actually met an Irish coach there who uh, full circle, his daughter was Julia Koppel's coach in uh, on Long Island. And one of my former players, one of my players these past few years, Katie Richards is now working summer camps in Ireland with this guy's daughter. So it's kind of strange, but uh um, my thoughts were that I had to find basketball for my for my kids. I wanted them to I wanted them to play, and so a lot of it in the early years I found it by creating it. And um, in time, you know, between Seven Oaks and the they also went to an American school where I was coaching, so they got basketball there too. So eventually, I didn't have to bring them back to the states anymore for basketball. You know, there was enough here. And were you were you shocked about or how? Well, I don't I don't want to put words in your mouth. Like, how did you find the level of basketball here? How did you find the structure of competitions here? Like, what were kind of your your first impressions of it all? Ooh, um, just that there just wasn't wasn't really enough. I mean, the, the National League was 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 very good, was pretty good. So it, uh, in those days, um, you know, the under eighteen competition was was pretty was actually pretty good. I mean you had Herringay, you had South End, you had Seven Oaks and they uh they all had pretty good uh rivalry there. I mean, you know, in the beginning uh uh Northampton was still was strong, Manchester was strong. So there were there was quite a bit of there was competition. Um but it's much different in the states in terms of uh facilities uh, it's school-based rather than club-based. 
Um, so every school, you know, I mean, just every school plays basketball and every school has a facility and every facility there is, um, is far and away, you know, I, I, the biggest shock being here was what, when they built a new sports hall and were really excited and proud of it, I'd look at it and go, wow. You know, I mean, the walls are on the side of the court and there's no room for, you know, anyone to come in and watch. And it's just, it's, it, it just, I don't know. I, I, I mean, I want, you want to say that it must be because of a, a land thing, but I just think it's a cultural thing that they just don't, don't spend money on it. I mean, there's plenty of room to add another, you know, 40 feet on each side when they build one of these and they just don't even, you know, and I made a big mistake. Elmbridge built a new leisure center in the early years when I was, I had only been here maybe eight or 10 years and I, it wasn't fully cognizant then of how critical it would be to get things built that can, you know, that, that can f support basketball properly. And the guy, I was talking to the guy from the council who was, you know, heavily involved, but I didn't realize that I really should have gotten involved heavily and, you know, talk really pushed to get them to build a, a proper facility um, because that, you know, they're only going to build one, you know, for the next 30 years. So mm -hmm. <laughs> that was an opportunity missed. Yeah, 100 percent. I definitely feel like it's a cultural thing. Like we just don't have that culture of especially of amateur sports grassroots sports of spectators um it always shocked me the first time i went to the states driving around and seeing you know whether it's a a baseball pitch or a, or a or a basketball court how many well there was always just seats there was always space for spectators to watch um whereas you know in england outside of outside of your professional football clubs um you know even grassroots level football rugby you know there's there's you go past those pitches. There are not there are not seats for for people to come yeah. and watch, um, and that obviously then makes it. I think that that feeds into the amateurism we have and the lack of professionalism because you're not even trying to build an experience made for spectators where you can then ticket an event and get revenue from that. Um, mm. Because yeah, like you said, there is the space. There's just not the there's not the actual thinking of you know let's make this happen. Um, so when when you set up the club, was there at that point, was there the ambition to grow it into, you know, kind of what it is today and as big as it is today and trying to have a, a professional uh, sort of top end as well? Or was it really just, you know, I want to provide an opportunity no, for, for these girls? That was, never, that was never the aim. And I think the, <clears throat> the women, the girls teams were very, very successful, but the model that we used was completely unsustainable. Um, we... You know, in those days we were playing under, you know, we would play kids across all the age groups. So, you know, and it was an effective model for developing excellence because if, you know, if you had a 13-year-old who, you know, they were playing against an under-14 team that they were going to win by 80 or 90 points, you know, there's really no point in playing that girl on that team. So she would play, she could play under-16s. And possibly our under-18s might be, you know, we were so good and we'd play some team that was just beginning and that team could win by 100 points. So we could even play an under-14, play several of them in that game. And that would be good for them. And we wouldn't waste the time of our top players playing in that game. And, um, 
and that model worked really well. But when you think of the costs of running each of those teams, instead of spreading it across 12 under 14s, 12 under 16s, 12 under 18s, we really had maybe, you know, eight under 14s. We had eight under six, you know, and eight under, and we just moved the players up and down to the best of their benefit, but, but we never covered the costs. So every year there was a 10 to 20,000 um, pound deficit, which went on for quite some time. And then once we started the... Uh, and how was that being covered just out of your pocket? Uh, it was my pocket. It was our chairman's pocket. Uh, you know, I think most of those years that was covered by, uh, you know, it was unbeknownst to me that there was this deficit because I never concerned myself with the costs. I just, you know, I went and coached, you know, all these teams every week and I'd coach three, four games and I trained them all. And, uh, so I think it was our chairman who was covering it. And, um, uh, I didn't even know about it until, till, you know, it had gone on for eight or 10 years. Um, and then when I started running the, um, uh, the women's program and got more focused on that. Then the club did a whole reorganization. We, we've got to become sustainable. So we hired a, we had a coach on the boys side who is now our in charge of development and that side. And he's, I think, I want to say we have 300 kids registered and that we have, you know, development teams, we have national league teams, we have, uh, you know, the, the boys side is, more than sustainable, you know, it's actually producing enough revenue that we can hire coaches. I think we have eight coaches and on the girls side, we're, we've done the same. We've turned it around. So the costs, they now cover the, um, cover their costs. Um, and it's just taken, taken a long time. So it, it's, uh, but it's, you know, I think, I think it's, it's getting there. So we, we achieved excellence, but it wasn't done sustainably. And if, if we had had 12 under 14s and 12 under 16s and 12 under 18s, we would never have, you know, sent 25 kids to the States on scholarships or, you know, achieve the level of excellence that we did because we, we needed to be able to move those kids around. How do you think junior basketball has changed since the time when you were playing younger players up and across different generations? Well, we can't, we're not allowed to do it anymore. So, you know, genius that we had as a performance uh, director uh, a few years back, she'll remain nameless, pushed through that, you know, players could only play in two uh, age groups. Uh, players also could only, you know, that you can only go up so far, so many years above your age. Um, just, you know, much, I was so against it and so upset when they did it, um, because it's, you know, you're just because of the, you know, some players may, some coaches may have abused players by playing them too many games or, you know, trying to win at every level. So running them up and down, but that was never what we were about. It was always, what's the best thing for the player, you know? And if you had a super, you know, I got a, I have a 13 year old girl who between our under 14s and our under 16, she's the, she's the strongest player in the whole club. 
and we played an under 14 team. Uh, they had licensing issues, so it became a friendly this weekend. So we went and played the game and our under 14s are actually quite, quite strong, but they're really good kids. And we, this team showed up, we decided we played anyway as a friendly. So they had six girls and three of them, it was the first game they'd ever played. And one was, you know, probably seven. <laughs> and uh, so I immediately suggested that we just, you know, either have a practice or split them up or, um, and the girl, she wanted to play one quarter. So we played one quarter and then we, and then we changed to a five on five on five. She said her girls wanted to play together and my girls, because we have a culture of being kind and, you know, olders helping youngers, you know, they, they were pretty nice to them and um, they had a good time and it was fun, but, but it's, uh, I think the point is that the disparity across, especially in the girls game from uh, across clubs is, you know, you, you need to be very careful with it and manage it really well. Cause I mean, we could draw, you know, you could draw Those girls could get driven out of basketball if they're, you know, they go out and it's, you know, 200 to zero, you know, or, or some, it's just, um, needs. Mm. It's the girl side is different than the boy side. I think in that regard. Yeah. I was, I was going to say that, um, you know, we, we all know that basketball has its challenges in, in England, in the UK. Uh, but then when I look deep into the girl side of the game, those challenges are exacerbated massively. Um, and uh, it almost needs a whole dedicated strategy to try to solve the issues. Um, what would you say are the biggest challenges for, for girls basketball in England? Boy. That's a tricky one. Well, I think that the even in my even in my own club, you know, six months ago I went to you know our chairman and the and the board, and I've I've said you are not we are not going to have a viable girls section girls side unless the club puts starts putting as much effort into developing that as they have the boys side. So developing the boys side. We've done really well, and it's a great achievement. But the uh, it's easier. It's just easier, you know. It's just parents push their boys into sports, and they've got to find somewhere to go. And they're not all going to be good at football. And uh, um, whereas girls, you know, if you you put if you took ten girls at random, you know, you'd have two or three that their you know father you know went out and played sports with them you know, kick the ball with them or play catch with them or that. And, you know, you'll have five or six, you know, that at the age of 12, you know, they've barely done anything physical. Um, and so you have to work a little harder to, uh, to get those girls earlier and get them playing sports and uh, realizing that they can be athletes and they can have fun in a, in a, in a game. You know, so our club is going to, you know, we're making a commitment now to to do it. Because I also said, you know, if I leave, if I don't do this, you know, what's going to happen to our girls program? You know, right now we have 25, you know, 25 girls, you know, between our 14s and our 16s. And um, um, 
you know, if I don't do it, you know, I think it'll, I think it'll die because we're not, we're not putting enough effort in. So, but we're going to. Yeah. So it's, it's always the challenge is there's, there is so many, there's so many pockets of good work happening within basketball in the UK, but it, so much of it comes down to individuals and the moment those individuals, you know, stop or move on, um, I think it's, it's been difficult to set up the structures so that it's culturally there within an organization to then continue doing whatever it was. Um, everything is just reliant on, on individuals. And so it isn't sustainable in that way because then what happens when that individual, you know, passes or, 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 or moves on. Um, so yeah, super challenging. So with the, when you sort of ended up setting up the, the women's program, uh, kind of what was the goal there? Was that still trying to provide an outlet for the top junior players to have a kind of top of the, <clears throat> top of the tree um, part of your pathway. Um, yeah, what was the kind of thought process? Yeah, that, that was it. It was, uh, um, you know, we, we, I remember when we started the WBBL, you know, the clubs had gotten together and they wanted to push, you know, the, the level in Division One. They wanted, we wanted to push it, you know, up a notch, take a little more control of it. Um, uh, from from our perspective in the club, it was to you know provide the best opportunity for the best young players. Um, I have to say that as I got, it was also had the dual purposes. I wanted to be challenged professionally as well. So I mean, I knew I could develop you know kids, and I knew I could coach you know under sixteens, under eighteens, and um, but I wanted another challenge as well. So continuing to develop that team, you know, and getting it to a higher level was, was also part of my own professional challenge. Um, and then the, the, the model, the financial model to make that work from the start, obviously, you know, we know, as you've, you've kind of mentioned that, you know, you've ended up withdrawing the, the, the WBBL side, um, you know, whether or not that's a the permanent thing or, or a temporary thing just for, for this season uh, to then get restarted. Um, you know, I guess we'll see, but, but like when you initially started kind of, how did you see that being financed? How did you see um, the WBBL club working? Well, it was, uh, it was initially, it was, you know, I basically paid, it cost me more and more money by stealth, you know, year by year, um, more than I ever imagined. You know, I could still remember, you know, swallowing real hard before paying, uh, you know, before paying a wreck dang, you know, a couple hundred pounds. I didn't even know what I paid her. You know, it was like, it wasn't, it wasn't a lot of money, but I was going, oh, and then same with Ross Mason, you know, the first call I'm going, oh, I'm actually going to pay money for this. And, you know, and it got to, um, I got to a point where we we're paying, you know, quite a bit of money for, for players and for the cost just grew, 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 grew. Um, I think the plan was that it would become, you know, we would get support, we would get sponsorship. Um, we would develop a uh, means, you know, of getting people to games and get ticket revenue. And this past, you know, we had, you know, lots of, you know, there was a lot of publicity. People knew who we were. We were very successful. The, you know, the women were fantastic. Um, we played, you know, I thought we played, you know, we were, we were doing a good job. And uh, 
it was a great thing what what we had, but there was no it just hit me this past spring. I just, you know, I was, there was a lot of work this past year, you know, I was doing all kinds of things off the court to keep the club going. And, um, you know, I think 90% of what I was doing was off the court as opposed to coaching and it was getting more expensive and I didn't see it going the other way. I think it was just going to keep getting more expensive and I was feeling more responsibility for the players and realizing that when you, you know, you have these, you know, women, you're, you're responsible, you know, for them, you know, medically, mentally, uh, you know, their whole, you know, security wise. Um, so, it, and it just hit me that there was no progress on revenue, like nothing, you know, nothing had changed. And uh, I said, this is just crazy. Like it, I can't afford it anymore. You know, it's not fair to my family and um, yeah, it was just, it just hit me clear as day that, you know, I had to stop. How much? Sadly, I mean, I was at the London, the final at the London game, you know, I sat on a bench and the, you know, when the game ended and, uh, it was the playoff semifinal against London and, uh, you know, it was just hugely emotional and very sad, very sad. I mean, we had, you know, with the girls in the in the changing room afterwards, you know, it was very heartfelt and, um, uh, yeah, so it wasn't, it was a sad moment, but, but very grateful for what we had. We had some, you know, wonderful times. Do you see yourself potentially bringing it back or do you think it's completely done? Well, I don't, I don't, you know, it's not coming back funded the way it was. So mm. it, it needs, you know, um, we're getting into like, you know, if you look at how the clubs are financed, so 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 the model that we were following was similar to, you know, Caledonia and London, you know, somebody was just providing the money. You know, there's no revenue for those clubs. Um, you've got your university based clubs, so they're getting money from from universities. I was trying to work it out and there's really only. There are two teams that are fully, you know, supported. They're supported by men's teams, <clears throat> Newcastle and Sheffield. You could argue Leicester was as well. Um, and there's university-based teams. You know, the, the, the money's got to come from somewhere. And there's only and Nottingham is a standalone. You know, is a is an, an anomaly because they're not tied to a men's team. They do have some university tie, but they have an arena that generates the revenue that supports theirs. And then other clubs have motivations for being in because it supports their, you know, they tie it to their academies and their academies produce revenue. So they somehow balance, balance that all off. Um, but we don't, we're not in a position to do that right now. And yeah, I just don't, and I don't see the uh, the support coming. I mean, you know, we had thought maybe Surrey, uh, that maybe the Scorchers, but Scorchers, you know, I don't, I don't know, I don't see them. Uh, they never wanted to put any money in. You know, they provide a court, and uh, so and and the the WBBL teams cost money. 
it cost a lot of money. You know, I mean, we were, we were, we probably spent, probably spent a hundred grand last year and it was not, that's not me. That's me not getting paid. So that's not even paying a coach. And that's God knows what else I did that were activities that you'd have to pay somebody to do. Um, so that 100k so, is going on player salaries, court hire, referees, table official stats. Uh, player. Well, we were actually getting our court for free, so it's player salaries. You know, game fees. Uh, we had medical expenses last year because um, I mean, you could say they can all go on the NHS. You pay an NHS surcharge, but if you got a girl that needs a surgery, um you go through the NHS, it, you know, her visa will expire before she gets it. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, so you can, if you wanted to, you could tell the player oh, well, that's your problem, but that wasn't really how we, we were going to operate. Yeah. You know, we would take care of the player. Um, other, you know, travel, you know, we had to go to Scotland to, did we go twice? You know, and that's, you know, it's two or 3000 every time you go. Um, and, um, yeah, so it, it just, it adds up, it adds up, it adds up. So what do you, what are your takeaways? Like what are the lessons to, if, if, if I said you are, do you know, what I'm thinking about setting up a, uh, a professional women's club, WBL club, you know, but financially I don't want to just pour money in and take, take a loss every year. Like what are my best chances of making it work? Um, what do you think are the lessons and what do you think is the model to give it the best chance of success? Wow. <laughs> That's a, uh, I think you, you need to, um, you need a fan base. Okay. You need revenue. You need your own facility. Um, you know, place to play that not only do you not pay for, but you can use to generate revenue both by yourself, you know, through your team and outside activities. Um, that could help support it. Um, in, in this country at this moment, I think you'd need a strong university tie, um, or, or a strong, you know, an academy that produces revenue and you could tie it to that. Um, you know, my dream was, you know, I felt like in, in Europe, there are a lot of women's, you know, I really don't know the details of how they finance, but a lot of the women's teams in Europe are, are, are the biggest game in town. So they're, you know, they're, they actually get fan support and they're, they're not, there isn't even a, you know, they're not tied necessarily to a men's team. Um, but I, I'm could, I'm not sure if mm. that is even a, you know, I used to think, oh, well, we're in seven Oaks, you know, we're, we could, we were the, we could have been, you know, the center of the town, you know, the, the whole, the biggest thing they ever had, you know, but there wasn't anywhere suitable to play in seven Oaks. Yeah. You um, you'd think with the, like, because you've also got, you know, you've got 300 kids playing in the junior club. You'd also think surely that would translate to having, you know, a fan base for the, for the seniors that, that they would, they would come and support the, 
Well, I think our timing was bad. I think I built the women's team up too soon and the rest of the club wasn't ready. So I say we have 300 players, but that's now. Right. So the three, the three years in a row at the O2 when we're winning, you know, we didn't have 300 players, you know, and we, we would get, you know, groups from the club to go, but it was too soon and costs accelerated too uh, quickly. And it just, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't do it another five years, you know, because mm. I think that might be what it would take. So, um, you know, there was a move to get an arena in Swanley. We were, you know, moving along. I remember plans. seeing some 3D renders, I think, of a, of a venue that you were potentially yeah, looking at getting then, done. You know, and then the council changes over, you know, the people who are supporting it are replaced by somebody else and they have a different agenda and, you know, it all falls apart. And, you know, if you look at Leicester, you know, building their arena, I mean, they were trying to build an arena, I want to say for 30 years. Mm. Mm. <laughs> I could be, I'm not sure it's exactly 30, but I know it was a long time they were trying and had lots of starts and stops and you know, before they finally got it. So, you know, it's not, it's not an easy process. And, uh, you know, I don't know how long Paul was working up in Newcastle to get it done as well. Um, you know, that's a, that's another viable model, you know, his of building up a huge base of community basketball, not really, you know, trying to build the junior team that wins championship, but he had numbers, you know, he had numbers and, you know, just hundreds, if not thousands of kids, you know, coming to pay and play sessions. And I believe that was a lot of the model. So um, that might be the, the answer. The, I suppose it's, you know, when I had my business in New York, you know, I remember I was like working like crazy and it was a futon company and I, I would go up to this, I'd gotten in trouble by building it too fast and, you know, got be, you know, lost a bunch of money when I didn't really have any money. And these two guys up in Worcester, Mass, two old guys sitting in a factory and they were selling me cotton. They would let, they let me stay in business basically by providing me some credit. And every time I'd go see them, they'd say, how you doing? I say, I'm doing great. You know, I'm selling here, selling there, I'm running around. And he just looked at me, he goes, Len, tell me, are you making money? <laughs> so I would say you got to make, you got to make, you got to produce revenue. You know, you can't have anything running at, at a deficit. You know, your junior club's got to be sustainable and they, sh they could, should produce revenue that could support a team at the top. And, uh, and then you need help getting sponsors and people into games. And I mean, I don't understand, you know, I don't think it's that, difficult, but somebody's got to do the asking, you know, somebody's got to get out and find it. So in other words, I wanted to coach, you know, that was the problem with seven Oaks. Like I, I wanted to coach. That's what I want to do. You know, I don't want to do the legwork and get an arena built and I don't want to go out and find spot, you know, look, I can produce a basketball team. That's, that's what I want to do. And that was the problem, you know, cause we needed all these other all these other things yeah and that is that is a, a familiar story in, in british basketball isn't it that you've got you've got someone that is doing every single role to try to keep the the club alive and i guess mm -hmm. finding those um 
that marry of different specific skills that can bring different things to the table, I guess, to, to make it work. Um, how much did, did, uh, the London Lions factor into your decision with obviously them suddenly coming with these deep pockets that, you know, they're steamrolling the league. Um, it obviously became more expensive to field a competitive team that has a chance of winning. Like, did that impact your your decision? Or do you think that even if, if let's just say, the Lions, you know, never came along, obviously now you've got Caledonia that are, that are sort of making significant investments as well. Um, do you think that you would have carried on because you still were able to, at least you're putting in the money, but you're winning titles and you're getting the press and the media and you're getting to the O2 and, and doing this and doing that? Like, do you think that factored into your decision or do you think that regardless financially, just it wasn't working, so it made sense to pull the plug? No, I think I think it still would have uh, still would have hit home. I mean, it's it's a tricky one because some of the difficulties with that with my last season uh, might have been related to you know trying to push the team up another another level, um, not necessarily by spending more, but by you know the players that I was bringing in. Um, but I think the impact of the Lions and Caledonia was that, you know, to be competitive, you'd need to, you need to continue to grow. And the league was pushing forward at the moment. So I didn't see, um, you know, I've done the, I've done the field, uh, field an okay or a weak team and, you know, just, you know, try and survive, you know, and be competitive. Uh, you know, I was looking through the records, uh, you know, when we first started playing women's basketball, we were in division one, you know, we had the one in 19 season one year and we were, you know, five and 13 and then, you know, eight and eight. And, um, that's a whole different, uh, you know, I mean, I've done it, I could do it, but it's not, it's not, uh, so I don't know if Lions and Caledonia, they, they exacerbated it because I, it felt like it was going to get, it was going to become more expensive, even just to field an okay team. Mm. And with uh, the league pushing for, you know, viable business plans, you know, I looked at ours and it's not, it wasn't viable, you know, it was like, if you ask me how I'm going to fund the team for the next three years, I'd go, well, I have no idea what I'm going to do next year. <laughs> I don't know where the, you know, it's uh, so that I think that was in the back of my uh, head as well, because they wanted, you know, you know, let's see your business plan three years, five years. And, uh, you know, well, there's no way that I'm funding this for five years and I don't have, I, there's no sign of anything else happening. So mm. that, that was part of it as well. Did you, did you, and the lions, the, I think they must be, it must be, they must be spending 2 million on the women. You think you know, they, that much? Have, well, I mean, if you think about, you know, how much it costs every time you go, you know, fly, you know, 18 people off to, uh, to a game, and, you know, you look at the caliber of players, you know, that the youth, uh, Sheridan Green, Timmy, Feck Benley, you know, Megan Gustafson, uh, you know, those, those players, like if you have an idea of salaries in Europe, um, 
I think it's not, it's pretty easy, you know, and they're mm. paying the staff, the coaches, mm. uh, renting the copper box for games. Uh, yeah. Adds up quick. It's, uh, I think it adds up, uh, you know, I mean, that's just off the top of my head, but I could be wrong, but it's a, uh, um, you know, even Holly must be getting paid pretty well, I would imagine. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I think it's something crazy. And, you know, part of me is going, you know, geez, you know, give me, give me 200. <laughs> you know, give me 200. I'll, I'll compete. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you feel when you sort of looking at it now as a, I guess, as a, as a, as a spectator, as opposed to being, being involved in that way, um, do you feel like it's moving in the right direction or do you think it's making progress or do you think it's, you know, it's essentially you've got London Lions doing what London Lions are doing, Caledonia doing what they're doing, but on the whole, oh. it's still very challenging business model and it's still, oh yeah. Women's side is, I'm, I'm a little nervous about this season, to be honest. I'm concerned about the, you know, the disparity between the top two or three and the rest of the league. Um, I've seen, it's not totally untied to the men's side. So, you know, the things, some of the things I'm, I'm watching the men's side and I think they have made a lot of progress. Um, you know, the, what I'm watching is better than what I've watched previous years. Um, my main concern is, is it all sustainable? Um, is the, um, the Lions funding going to stay um, long-term and are they going to continue to invest in the women's team long-term? Um, if they do and Caledonia comes along, then, you know, continues, then, uh, you know, the universities don't, I don't know how much they're going to be willing to invest longer term. Like my, my personal view years ago was that, you know, you should have a professional league and then you should have your universities um, playing. But here, because there's, it's so difficult to get funding for teams, the universities are actually funding the professional teams and using it as part of the university. Um, and that's just, you know, it's, it's necessary at the moment because there just aren't enough pockets of money to fund teams um, in this country. So we need, we need the university teams or we won't, won't have teams. Do you feel overall the league is professionalizing and moving in the right direction? Do you feel like there is progress? Oh, it's so much, it's, it's, it's like so much better than it was, you know, when we were doing, when we were running division one teams and um, first got together to start the WBBL, I mean, you know, the, what's happened from then to now is better. I, I mean, I'm not, I haven't seen this season yet, but, you know, up until last season, you know, the, the, the league and the professionalism has risen. Absolutely. Is there any part of you that feels regret that you're not going to be involved? Oh, well, regret's a funny word. So, you know, personally, uh, health wise, uh, you know, I am in the best place I've been uh, for a long time, you know, it is just that, um, so do, do I miss the 
am I going to miss the challenge of it, you know, of going into a game and preparing, you know, and finding, uh, coming up with a plan and then, you know, seeing the players carry it out and be successful, you know, review, plan, repeat, you know, am I going to, I miss that. Absolutely. But I'm also, you know, I'm not missing the 8 million things I had to do besides the coaching side. And, uh, I'm quite, uh, so I'm in quite a, and I'm, I'm loving going back to coaching the kids again. You know, it's a lot more, um, you know, the gratitude and the, you know, the joy there is, uh, is very nice and it's refreshing, but yeah. When you had conversations with potential sponsors or you tried to reach out to companies about, you know, helping with finance, the, the financial side of things, like kind of what was the response? What was the, the pushback? Where were the difficulties um, with trying to, trying to get financial help in terms of sponsorship? Well, I think the problem was that I wasn't asking. <laughs> right. So we had people in the club who were in charge, you know, responsible for, you know, charged with, you know, finding sponsors and, you know, I just, I, so I'd almost have to have to ask them. Um, I think, uh, I don't think there's a culture of, of sponsoring sports at the level that we're talking. I, I, I'm not even sure. You know, I don't, maybe not asking the right people. We do have some sponsors in the club. You know, we've got a couple of law firms. We've got, a, you know, an engineering firm and they're, um, um, but they're most, they're the sponsor in the juniors. So I don't know if that's how the ask is formed or if that's the involvement they want to have. Mm. Um, I think there's... Yeah, I think the biggest problem for me was that I, I just focused on coaching and not the other stuff, and that was a, that was really the the problem. I mean, I think there's a place, it's a no brainer that somebody could have ridden on the back of what we were doing and supported it and pushed it forward, and it would have been beneficial to the the companies involved. You know, I also believe that you know we could that if that a 5,000 seat arena is commercially viable and that, you know, it would, it, it would be sort of like the, uh, when the O2 was first built, uh, the ridicule and the, you know, the negative press around what a, you know, giant white elephant this was and what a waste of money. And, you know, now it's the, it's the arena in London, you know, one of the greatest cities in the world. You know, and I think it's the same, <clears throat> you know, that they don't, the vision people just don't get at the moment, but somebody could build a, you know, just build a tip, even a typical college arena in the U.S., you know, a 10,000 seater or a 15,000 seater, you know, or even a small one of 5,000 seats, you know, could make money, could make money. Yeah. You know, but, you know, there was a spot in Weybridge that I looked at, you know, there's Mercedes Benz arena, you know, where they've they got a Mercedes Benz, you know, with a racetrack and all this stuff. And it's right here. And across the street, there's this just a field with like, you know, a couple of paved areas and, you know, uh, uh, some playground equipment at one end. 
would be a dream spot for a, I mean, you could build it, it would just be the center of the whole town and <clears throat> would make money. And you go see the town about it and go, oh no, there's like a, there's a flyway for birds across it. <laughs> and if you build, if you build an arena there, you got to provide a flyway somewhere else. So you'd have to buy another piece of it. I'm, I'm gone. It's just, it's just a piece. It's paved, you know, it's mostly paved yeah. ground. It's, yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't know. So, but I don't, <clears throat> I don't know. I think we need the, the vision, but I think, <clears throat> um, you know, we could facilities would, would do well if we could just get them built a hundred percent, not just only for basketball, they could be used for concerts and plays and all kinds of things. Yeah, I mean, Newcastle and Leicester have, have both proven, proven that, um, you know, it's not just theories. Like you, you build it, you can make it work for sure. Um, what sort of the, what is the, the vision now for the club in the immediate future? Like what, what sort of plans do you have, um, to continue doing what you're doing? Well, actually, I think, you know, I've just, um, I've, uh, you know, I'm going to coach the, going to coach the kids, this, the girls this year. And I think we've got some good ones. And I think we'll return to being successful, um, at the junior level. The trick for me now is how to manage the, <clears throat> we discontinued our under 18 girls program because of competition with the academies and, uh, um, you know, it just wasn't. And it's also cost-wise, that's the hardest level to be self-supporting because you have so few, uh, you don't have enough under 18s to, to st stack the team. So you've, you've got 16s who could play it, but then you got to charge them for two teams and the, you know, the numbers just don't work. But we're going to try and get to the point where we could support one next year. And then there's this plans with uh, Noel Academy talk about, you know, getting an academy set up there um, and some facilities built uh, starting with outdoors and uh, hopefully, but once again, you know, we've got talks about indoor facilities, but there's, you know, planning, planning issues, you know, so, um, so it's, it's just very difficult. I think planning uh, planning <clears throat> groups. Their mission is to is to say no and to stop things from being built. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's that's exactly it. We um, we've been trying to do a court renovation project in a. I will I will leave the borough remate. Um, I will not name the borough in London, but uh, the just just feels like they have no intention of trying to help to make it happen. It's just being disparaging and doing everything they can to not make it happen. And it's just like, I just don't understand the, the mentality around it. It's very challenging. Um, one thing I just wanted to touch on there is that the under 18 age group, why, why is that such a challenging age group, especially for girls? Is that just because there's a sort of massive dropout around that age of girls starting to think about their careers and what else they're going to be doing and getting more serious about, I guess, growing up and choosing um, I guess, career pathways that then necessarily make it harder to play basketball? Like, why do you think there is the struggle with the under-18s? <clears throat> I think all those things that you just mentioned. So I think the pool pool of players at the age group gets uh, smaller. 
Um, I mean, I think it's just a natural thing. I think the whole, the, it's the pyramid is natural, but, and so the base isn't wide enough. There aren't enough playing. And what we need is a coherent uh, strategy at that age group, as opposed to the uh, sort of haphazard and uh, split divided strategies. So, so the, you know, like I, the, the academy is one avenue, that's fine, but let's, you know, make that as wide and as accessible as possible. So, um, you know, if you're going to have an academy league and a national league, well, the national league is essentially at under 18 level is, is dead. I mean, there's just, just like I was looking at the number of teams in it and uh, it's great. I don't know. There's only about eight teams across the whole country. Um, you know, so we it used to, there used to be a lot more, but now it's split between academies. So academies have siphoned off a lot of players, so you can't really have that. I mean, Richmond Knights, one of the most successful girls clubs over the last few years, you know, they don't run an under 18 team because they, it's just easier. It's it financially doesn't make any sense. You can't support it. So they just send their, their players just go to academies. Mm -hmm. We've started, we've sent, start sending, we send players to academies. Mm -hmm. um, but we, we could have kept, you know, we, so we can't run it, but we're going to try. And, but we'll have an academy, you know, that will support the national league team. But I don't, I don't know. Maybe the answer is that the, you know, the academy league shouldn't be so exclusive because the, you've got England basketball narrowing down the, who can have an academy and limiting the numbers. Um, I don't know if that's the best best strategy. If if you uh if you were in charge of getting more girls playing basketball to build the base to build the size of the base because that is seems to be one of the fundamental issues. There's just there's just not enough girls playing, right? Mm -hmm. And there's not enough opportunities for girls to play. Um, like if you were in charge of trying to trying to change that, like what would be your priorities to get more girls playing? Boy, uh, quality of quality of coaching. And, and opportunities to get on the court and play. So when I see, you know, uh, beginning groups of uh, girls playing, you know, I, I, I just get this, I wanna go out there and I wanna, I wanna convince them of what they can do and, you know, what they're capable of and how fun it can be. And then I'd wanna take, you know, some of the best, you know, I'd br wanna bring people like, uh, like Renee, uh, uh, my daughter or some of the other, you know, players who've gone through playing basketball and made a career out of it and get them in as role models. I don't think they see enough role models. Um, you know, there, there's, there's a, there's a million things. I mean, we had a group before COVID, we had a Friday night session, you know, that had about 35, you know, under 12s and, um, um, you know, it was just a fun, fun session. We had a lot of coaches working it. And um, unfortunately, COVID, you know, killed that. And we had to essentially start over afterwards. Um, so, yeah, it's it's opportunities and it's and it's quality of coaching and it's uh, um, really nurturing um, them, you know, making sure it's uh it's fun 
and that players are supportive of each other. You know, we did a really nice, it was very, I'm very proud of the, the girls that are at Seven Oaks right now and how they are just kind, you know, we don't let the, the stronger ones crush the weaker ones. No, if you're going to crush somebody, crush somebody your own size, you know, you can fight then. And then, uh, so it's, uh, I think that's sort of culture is necessary to start. And then when you get a commitment, then you can start to, you know, you know, push them a bit and make them more competitive. But initially it's got to be about, about, you know, socialization, you know, having fun, you know, let's, this is a great game. Uh, so I think it might get too competitive sometimes too soon. <clears throat> for the girls gotcha. I'm aware of time so I just want to I want to fire some quick fire questions at you um, before we wrap up um, starting with uh, your favorite memory uh, with the WBBL club God, well okay uh, 2017 18 2017 final the one the first first final we won at the O2 um, we played Nottingham Wildcats. Uh, we weren't favored. We were 10 points down at halftime. And uh, we were just, we were struggling with how to solve something that Nottingham was doing and just struggle, struggle, struggle. At halftime, we're talking and we didn't come up with anything. Came up with a plan. We go out and then just as they're about to go on the court, I go, uh, I go, uh, you know, T, I go to Tiani Clark, I go, T, maybe Gabby should guard, guard their guard, guard the Portuguese guard who's been killing us. And T just said, yeah, we already sorted it out. We got it. She's on her. <laughs> so they, and they, the reason that flashed into mind is just that was the uh, symbolic of the kind of teams we had when we were successful that the players, um, you know, could solve problems and would solve them and that was a joyful one because we weren't expected to win your favorite player to coach oh there's no way i could answer that can you give us a, a short you know, list i mean it'd have to be well it'd be between uh you know t tiani clark uh cat car and and my daughter so, you know, they're just, I couldn't, couldn't pick. And we've had so many wonderful, wonderful players, but those, those three, you know, they were, you know, they were um, fun. The best junior player that you've ever seen play, doesn't matter what they did at a senior level, but as a junior, is there any player that particularly stands out? Could I say a, a tie? Yeah. Uh, Sheridan Green and uh, and Gabby Nikki Tanini. Best individual performance you've ever witnessed. Who was it? What did they do? There's probably some that I'm forgetting, but uh, the uh, under eighteen. Uh, England under 18s 2012 semi-final game against Portugal 
to get promotion to the uh, to the A division. Uh, Sheridan Green, you know, ten points, ten rebounds, and a big steal in the last minute, going the length for a layup. Uh, yeah, I, I think that that just sprung sprung to mind. Great. Perfect. Cool. We're bang on an hour. You know, I know there was there was so much stuff that I wanted to get to that we didn't even get a chance to touch upon. So I think it'd be worth uh, doing a part two at some point. But thank you so much for taking the time. It's much appreciated. Um, and I wish you all the best for everything you're doing uh, this season. Thanks, Sam. It's been a pleasure. And uh, I would love to do it again. You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more.